Nick Kutsanica is a longtime NHL and NFL sports journalist. In this talk, we cover all things related to sports journalism, what makes a great story, and what separates the great performers from everybody else. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, what's it kind of been like with, uh, I mean, how has COVID impacted the NHL or I guess sports journalism in general um, for you and, and your colleagues the past year or so? Well, to start off, I mean, I have enough perspective to know that, um, you know, I have it good, right? I'm healthy. I'm working. Uh, I know a lot of people have had it much harder than, than I have, so I don't want it to, to sound, um, you know, I want it to have the right perspective here. But it, yeah, it's changed everything. I mean, normally my job, I'm on the road a lot. Uh, I'm in locker rooms. I'm talking to players and coaches and executives. I'm at games. I'm at events. Um, and for the you know vast majority of the last year, I've been in my spare bedroom, you know, <laughs> on Zoom calls and trying to do things remotely, and that's very difficult because you know unlike sort of radio and TV, which are very soundbite based, um, you know my job is more depth and storytelling and taking you where you can't go, and now I can't go where I need to go to take you where you can't go. If that makes any sense. So, right. um, you know, I really thrive on in-person interactions and interviews and, and digging for story and digging for depth. And, and that's very difficult to do remotely. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And I guess what, I mean, is there, how has it impacted the NHL uh, specifically or uniquely maybe uh, apart from other leagues? I mean, you know, it's not the NHL is obviously one of the major sports and, in, in, you know, globally um, don't quite have the firepower that the NFL does. I don't think most leagues do. So it's interesting to see how COVID has kind of impacted different sports leagues. Um, how has it impacted the NHL maybe uniquely from other sports? Well, I think it's unique in, in two ways, especially number one, um, the NHL is in two countries more than any other sport. I mean, the NBA has, Toronto and MLB has Toronto, but the NHL has seven teams in Canada. Uh, so you've got a border that can't be crossed uh, right now without strict quarantine rules. Um, you have different standards in Canada than you do in the US. Um, I mean, it's very different market to market. And then you add two countries in the mix, it makes it very complicated. And then two, the NHL uh, generates more of its revenue on a percentage basis from fans being at games than the other sports. So um, it's been more economically stressful, I would say, to the NHL than it's been to the other sports because we have less of a part of our pie comes from TV. Uh, right. So it's been very difficult. Um, you know, but what I will say is uh, the NHL's been grinding through it. Um, we've had some teams with outbreaks. We've had uh, lots of disruptions and delays and our seasons going is shorter and running later than scheduled. Uh, but you grind through and, you know, the league is frankly going to lose a lot of money this year. Um, but the league is playing and because of, you know, that's what you do. That's what we do. And we want to see the Stanley cup awarded at the end of the year. Um, and then hopefully get back to normal next season. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, you guys are crisscrossing the border. It's still shut down. There's definitely way different standards up in Canada versus uh, certainly different place in the United States. I mean, Canada is probably a little bit more like the Northeast or, you know, California, I guess. But um, it, 
I'm, I'm curious, like, do you, do you believe that COVID, is there concern in the NHL with COVID impacting the parity um, of play between different teams? So, for example, in the NFL, to use that as a comparison, there were a couple weeks where maybe a major player had a COVID issue or they had to sit out a week. And then, you know, of course, the commentators next week go, well, you know, this team, they should have slaughtered this worst team, but their starters were out, so it doesn't really count. It, is that happening in the NHL on, on any level? To a degree. I mean, it, yeah. certainly it's impacted some teams more than others. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this is not an ideal situation. And I think we knew all knew going into this season that it was not going to be a perfect world. Um, it wasn't going to be fair. Life isn't fair. And so I think we all accepted that on some level uh, coming into the year. And it's just something that you're going to have to put up with. Um, you know, the Vancouver Canucks right now have been off the ice since March 31st. They're going to come right back on the ice and then they're going to play 19 games in 31 days. Is that fair? Wow. Nope. <laughs> Is that going to be really difficult? Yep. But lots of other teams have dealt with it. Um, and it's just, unfortunately, the luck of the draw. Um, sure. something that we all have to go through to, to get through this season. Sure. Yeah. And it's already hard to maintain some semblance of parity, even when there is no COVID and then you sprinkle that into the mix and yeah, it, it can certainly cause some chaos. Um, let, let's transition a little bit away from the NHL. Moreover to you, a lot of the listeners are probably, you know, into sports and uh, but probably younger listeners as well, who might be interested in like sports journalism. Um, it's funny, like, I mean, me as a coach, it seems like football seems to, I, I coach football. It seems like football tends to find players more than players find it. And I'm curious, how did uh, maybe sports journalism find you when you well, first started? Like most sports writers, I was once a wannabe athlete, right? Like I, in, you know, I grew up playing, you know, baseball, basketball, soccer and hockey. Um, I never actually played football, partly because my mom didn't want me to play and partly because I played hockey, but I always loved football. Um, And, you know, I played, you know, varsity baseball in high school. I played varsity level hockey in high school. Um, You get to college and and I chose the path of going to a big school instead of playing baseball at a smaller school. Uh, So I ended up at Michigan. And, you know, (laughs) to make a long story short, uh, if you'd asked me what I was going to be uh, going into college, I probably would have said, oh, I'll probably go to law school. Um, so I joined the Michigan Daily, the student newspaper on day one, mostly because I wanted to get involved. I like to write. and I figured this might look good on a law school app one day. Well, I'm about two weeks into work on the news staff and I'm sitting in a boring meeting about um, city council and student government. And I look across the, the newsroom and the sports staff is playing Nerf hoops and talking about where they're going out in South Bend. And I leaned <laughs> over to the person next to me. I'm like, they're going to the Michigan Notre Dame game. They're like, yeah. They go, who pays for that? The paper. And I'm like, I quit. And <laughs> I left the new staff and I went to the sports staff because the student newspaper was a huge commitment. I mean, we're talking right. well over 40 hours a week. Um, especially once I rose to sports editor, it was, it was ridiculous. And I'm like, if I'm going to work this hard on, at an extracurricular activity, um, I'm going to have fun. Right. So Michigan sure. was a great school to cover sports. Um, and now I'm going to brag a little bit, but like my luck was phenomenal. And that certainly plays a role in this. 
Um, you know, I covered four national championship teams in four years. My freshman year, I covered swimming. They won the national title. My sophomore year, I covered hockey. They won the national title. Um, my senior year, I covered football. They won the national title. And then I got a second hockey title my senior year. And I had so much fun doing it um, and did it at a high level because of the university I was at. Uh, it became a career. And the great, you know, if you want to look at any career, you know, or any pursuit, whether you're an athlete or a coach or a sports writer or a accountant or whatever it is, you got to love what you do. If you love what you do, um, work doesn't seem like work, right? And I love doing it every day. I love the people I was with. I love the job. I love the road trips. I love being in stadiums. I love the writing. And you have to love the writing. It's not enough to love the sports. Um, you have to be able to write. You have to be able to write quickly. You have to be able to write accurately. You have to be able to write in a cold press box with uh, spotty Wi-Fi, uh, with lots of distractions around you. You have to love that part of it too. And you know, if you're looking for a parallel to sports, it's the same as you got to love practice. You've got to love, if you're a kicker, you have to love the actual mechanics of kicking and you have to love every little bit of it if you're going to really do well um, and enjoy it. So, you know, that's sort of a long story short about how I got into what I, what I do. And I guess um, what you kind of mentioned, you had great luck. I mean, was there a particular mentor or role model who were kind of not for them you wouldn't be currently where you are at professionally? There's lots of them. I mean, I think the, the great thing about Michigan is there's no undergraduate journalism school. So mm -hmm. the student newspaper is completely student run. It's got a long tradition. Uh, it's got its own building. It's very good. Um, but there was lots of trial and error there. And I, we could do a podcast series about all my, my war stories. Um, but lots of students who came before me, taught me, um, you know, part of the luck was a having fun and realizing this is something I wanted to do and covering winning teams helped, but also covering winning teams helped get me experience and clips that I could show to get internships and later jobs. So my sophomore year, Michigan wins the national championship in hockey that gave me sort of the writing samples to send to the Detroit free press to get an internship. And next thing I know, I've got a mailbox next to Mitch album in an office. Like it was crazy. Right. And then that experience became an internship at the Washington post. Um, and next thing I know I'm, I'm, you know, my desk is 10 feet from a Wilbon and Kornheiser. We're arguing with each other like PTI before PTI, um, <laughs> you know, right. and it opened doors, right. It was one step at a time. Um, but it's, it's hard work and putting yourself in position and then, you get lucky, right? And certainly there's a lot of luck for me being in the right place at the right time, getting a lot of breaks. But I would say, you know, two internships, one at the Detroit Free Press my, after my sophomore year, one at the Washington Post after my junior year um, really set the foundation for me. That was my real professional school, uh, my graduate school uh, to get uh, into journalism were those internships. And, and so what, makes a sports story compelling to you are there uh maybe like two or three like key traits that any really good sports story needs to have for you or i'm just kind of curious like what your what's your what's your philosophy of what makes a great sports story 
Well, I think this works for a sports story or works for a business or, or, or a lot of different things. I think you need to be first, best, or different. Um, you know, ideally, all three, if you can be. Um, you know, if you first, if you break a story, uh, that's compelling. If, you're, if you tell the best story, that's compelling. If you're different, that's compelling. So check one of those boxes, at least if you can. Um, you know, the other sort of, you know, saying that, that I have, that's not mine. I got it from, I think my sports are the Detroit free press um, is just, you have to take people where they can't go or tell them something they don't know. Right. Like that's really what it comes down to. Uh, and that's what I love to do. Um, you know, I get access to places and the people that fans are interested in. I mean, that's what the word media is. You're the medium between, um, you know, the teams and the athletes and the readers and the fans. Um, so I take that quite literally and quite seriously without hopefully taking myself too seriously. And, you know, I get to talk to these people. I get to learn things. And it's my job to sort of, you know, pass that on to my readers. And hopefully they enjoy reading about it and learning about the things that, that I learned. So um, that's my philosophy in a nutshell. And in the actual like physical writing of your stories, is there like a, is there a process that you tend to follow? Like, so for like, I know some people like live on their laptops or they use an app or some people are like old school with. So the reason why I'm asking is my, my dad was a journalist for years um, for like CNN, ABC, you know, all those uh, news stations. But, you know, he was always a legal pad guy, he would sketch out his stories first and then he would type them up then he'd edit it and then he'd polish it off is there some type of process that that you kind of follow or maybe that's a little different because your your timeline is a lot more compact well i'm on much stricter deadlines um you know and right. it's over many years lots of practice but like basically everything i write's a rough draft because everything's on deadline um but you get used to that i would say process is for most stories and columns you know, I'll do interviews and then I transcribe everything myself. Um, I record all my interviews. I don't, I don't rely on, on handwritten notes, whatever possible. And I transcribe them myself because I, when you go back through the tape and you physically type the words, you hear things and pick up things that maybe you didn't when you were interviewing the person. So mm -hmm. that's a very important part of my process. And then, you know, it, it's, it takes a lot of practice, but I generally kind of write, you know, beginning to end. Um, maybe for a much, for a longer, more in-depth project, I might do an outline. Uh, but generally, I don't. I'm just kind of one word and one sentence flows to the next. Um, and I'm just, you know, that takes a lot of practice. But I don't think some people understand the deadline pressure. Um, you know, when I was at a newspaper, it took years of practice to meet deadlines. And you're writing about a game during a game a lot of the time. Um, I, you know, I could tell you lots of stories where I, I'll come down and talk to a player. And he'll be, yeah, I'll ask about something that happened in the third period or the fourth quarter. And they're like, weren't you watching the game? I'm like, no, I'm covering the game. <laughs> like, I'm just writing, <laughs> right? Like, right. you rely on replay because your head's down writing. Um, you know, now because of the internet, I have a little bit of luxury. But, and I don't want to bore the readers here with, or listeners with, too many details but for example if i'm covering an nhl playoff game the game ends and i have 90 minutes to get upstairs in the press box down the locker room talk to players talk to the coach get back upstairs transcribe and write an 850 word column 
90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of time. Like you try right. to write any, you know, 850 words just simply, you know, without having to do all that. So it, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot, takes a lot of practice. Um, but, you know, I think procrastinating in all my college papers and doing everything to the last minute was a good preparation for my job now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think it's called uh, Parkins law. Uh, <laughs> quality is inversely related to time allotted to a task. So it's like these Harvard researchers were trying to figure out why college seniors could somehow rip off A plus papers at the last hour. And it was because the time finally forced them to focus and like block everything out. So maybe there's something to that in the sports world. That's definitely true in the sports writing world. I can, I can attest to that. And it's a, uh, but unfortunately for me, that didn't apply to math. <laughs> so <laughs> I found the one skill set. It's my one narrow skill set that I have that uh, I've been able to make a living off of. So how, I guess uh, we, we have another question that, and I'm curious about, and I joke around, with my dad all the time about this, he went to new house up at Syracuse. I think that's what it's called. Um, and, you know, back in the seventies, you had to learn how to do, you know, audio was its own specialty. Lighting was its own specialty. Video was its own specialty. Now we all have multimedia studios in our pockets called iPhones with HD cameras and microphones networked up to 4 billion people. Um, and it's almost like, you know, where, where the heck does journalism belong anymore in a day and age where everybody kind of is the center of their own universe. So I, I guess like what, what's your general take on, uh, or I guess how has sports journalism specifically changed in the past 10 to 20 years or so with the advent of, of social media? Well, we could spend a, you know, a semester talking about that. Um, <laughs> that's a very long, complex um, question. Uh, the short answer is it's changed dramatically. Like I'm just old enough to have written for a black and white newspaper. Like when I wrote for the Washington Post, it was black and white. Um, you know, and back then too, you would, you know, write your story that day. And there were even times when you would, if you had a scoop, like a really good scoop, you might not write it for the first edition of the paper because you didn't want your competing paper to see the first edition. And then, you know, cobble together a story for the later editions like now if you sit on a story for five seconds somebody else will tweet it right mm-hmm. so over time you went from you know you know reporting and writing and frankly you know taking care um to fact check and have the story go through two or three reads uh and publish a story on deadline but you get to go through all that and that was your day's work well now um you're reporting things to the public as you're reporting them. Uh, everything's sort of on the fly because it's via Twitter. Um, there's cutbacks, so there's less editing going on. Um, you know, and you're competing with not only other professionals, but, but the general public. Like anybody with a phone or a Twitter account um, can call themselves a journalist. So there's a lot more noise out there. There's a lot more competition, um, which hurts um, the, both the quality of the journalism and the business of the journalism. So it's a very difficult environment and it's 24 um, seven. That said, I always feel like the quality of the work is your saving grace and, and your, you know, your credibility is your currency, right? So if, 
my, in my mind, there's a couple different ways to separate yourself. Like you can be um, outlandish. That's going to get eyes and, and clicks, you know, eyes and ears and clicks, right? Like, I think we've seen that in sports and politics that if you're on one extreme or the other, you're going to get attention. Something that's in the middle ground is, is not, right? But over time, like if you are, you know, outlandish and inaccurate and irresponsible, hopefully people will see that. And that's not the audience you want, right? So, you know, my goal is to be an honest broker of information, to be trustworthy, to be accurate, um, to be interesting in a responsible way. And hopefully I build an audience doing that. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because you see a lot of the clickbait artists out there, whether it's an Alex Jones or a liberal equivalent, you know, getting sued for defamation for, you know, their outlandish stories. And their defense in court is, well, I'm not really a journalist. I'm a dramatic artist and my work is art, <laughs> you know. So it, it is, yeah, it seems like, um, you know, one polarity or the other kind of sells the best. And that's trickled down um, into sports as well. You can see ESPN trying to, you know, play play catch up with the types of social media they're posting to look more like Barstool and vice versa. So um it, it is a, it's like the best social media is like the best and worst thing that ever happened to humanity and subsequently probably sports as well i would agree <laughs> and again <laughs> that's another longer conversation but sure um yeah i mean it's it's a difficult environment um but at the end of the day you, you have to block out the noise you have to focus on what you do well and you have to to execute right like to bring it back to kicking it's the, sort of the same thing like there's there's all this noise there's all these competing things you know for your attention and and this and that and you, you have to focus on your job and you have to be in the moment and you have to do do what you know is the right thing right so that's sure. what i try to do in, in my little world and so when you're dealing with you know one of the things you said earlier was that you're interesting you have access to people that your audience finds interesting as hockey fans, you have also this time pressure to churn out, you know, X amount of words within 90 minutes after a game, but all great storytelling still has to rely on some form of trust or a relationship between you and the, and the person who you're doing the story on. And so I'm curious, how do you go about building trust with pro athletes? Um, it seems like, and I'm, I'm sure it's not the same everywhere, but kind of the stereotype is that there, if you look at journalism more broadly, there is kind of this, you know, us against journalism or, you know, fake news or whatever. You can't trust the media type of uh, mentality, whether it's sports or politics or elsewhere um, these days. Um, how do you go about building trust and relationships with the professional hockey players that you cover? Well, it, it's especially difficult right now because you can't go in the locker room, right? Like everything's over Zoom. Everything's extremely formal. Uh, there's a lot of distance now between us and them. And that creates an us and them dynamic. Um, you know, part of going in the locker room is not just because, ooh, it's cool. It's a locker room, right? And ooh, I get to like rub elbows with athletes. Like, number one, I'm not there to be their friend. I'm not there to be um buddy buddy and try to like you know 
you know, go out with them after the game. Like that's not the goal, right? The goal is for them to get to know me as a person and, and vice versa. Um, and if I write something that's wrong or they don't like, I'm there the next day, right? So I'm accountable for it. And believe me, we could have a whole other podcast of conflicts that I've had with coaches and players. Um, they don't always like me and I don't always like them. But what you try to do is be fair and build trust over time. And by trust means not that, oh, I'm going to write everything like, it's that I'm going to be fair to you. you know, there's a couple things that, that I always try to do. Like if I'm going to write something negative about somebody, I try to tell them ahead of time and, and say, this is what I'm going to write. Why am I wrong? Like, tell me what I need to know, right? And I need to listen to them when they, when they give me their side. Um, you know, I remember when I was a young reporter covering the Detroit Red Wings, um, I was put in a really tough position by my newspaper. They're like, you need to grade the players. Like I'm in my early twenties. I'm covering the Detroit Red Wings who have like nine future hall of famers and a hall of fame coach. Um, and you want me to put a letter grade on these guys? Like it's very uncomfortable. And I learned after one or two times doing it that, what I'm going to do now is if anybody gets a grade that I think they won't like, which is probably anything below an A, <laughs> I'm going to go up to the player and say, Hey, look, like I'm going to give you a C. This is what, this is my reasoning. Um, tell me why I'm wrong. And some guys would get mad and some guys would suddenly I would learn about all their injuries that they <laughs> were trying to keep quiet before, right? Oh, I've had this and our coach won't play me here or this and that. But at the end of the day, I learned that by doing that, they may get mad, but they will respect me because at least I came to them and I was upfront and honest with them. And I mm -hmm. told them what I was doing and I was straight with them. And then when it was published, it was, they were fine. They're pros, right? So the long answer is it takes a long time. It's day in, day out. Not everything's smooth. You can't expect it to be smooth. You're not there to be their friend, but you are there to be fair, right? So the hard part now is there's much more distance and it's hard to get to know each other as human beings. Um, and I think that that's bad, not only for the reporters and the athletes, but for the readers and the viewers. Sure. It's interesting how the, the context or the environment of, you know, where you're talking to somebody will impact how they, how they feel about things. I'm sure like in the back of everybody's head on zoom, it's always like, man, like, I hope nobody like, you know, misquotes me or screenshots me or, you know, but whereas if you're in the locker room, I'm sure there's at least that, you know, hopefully a, a more relaxed environment. Well, uh, but it, it depends. Yeah. Right? And, but there are the, like road trips were the best because guys weren't going, you know, rushing to get out to go home. Right. So they're, they're, they'll hang around longer. And plus, if you're on the road with them, they see that you're, you've got your own grind. Right. And so you build a little camaraderie that way. Um, right. And yeah, those informal moments are, are important and the best stories come out of those. The best stories are the ones I don't know, right? Like if you're constantly going in a locker room just to get quotes for some preconceived notion of a story that you already have in your head, like you're not learning anything, right? So casually talking to people and learning about them as people and learning about their lives and learning about their craft, that's where the best stories come from. Like I don't, I'll go in a locker room. I don't know what I'm going to get, right? And I found that those are the best stories, um, you know, and you have to get to know the guys uh, to get those stories. So 
Um, you know, but again, it's not always smooth and in, in, in uh, it's not always a, a cakewalk, right? So it's very different than what I think a lot of people think it is. Sure. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, well, I mean, but still you need to know how to build a relationship with guys because that's their trust in you is the only thing that can kind of transcend all this other, you know, nonsense that's going on with, you know, us versus them and the media and, and whatnot. Um, but that takes time. And so when you think about when you look back at who you've covered and the different athletes you've worked with. Um, well, I guess I'm just curious, who are some of the, like the, maybe like two or three, like really standout athletes that like you really enjoyed covering. That I enjoyed covering or that's quite different than like who, who your listeners might be interested in. I mean, the, the greatest athletes aren't always the best interviews, right. Or the, the best guys to write about. Like I, Sometimes, like, I love writing about the fringe players. Like, there's some of the, the best stories come out of those guys. And, you know, unfortunately, like, it's been, um, you know, too long of a career to single out people. Um, but I will name drop Tom Brady, for example. So I covered Tom Brady when he was a quarterback at Michigan who nobody knew anything about. I certainly didn't know that he was going <laughs> to become Tom Brady. Um, you know, and I remember... Um, you know, there was a, there was a luncheon, you know, they used to have a weekly luncheon where they would bring some players in for the media to talk to, and nobody wanted to talk to Tom Brady. And he's in the back of the room work, working on a worksheet. And I go back and sit there and talk to him. And, and, um, the thing that really stood out about Tom Brady at that time, uh, and I, I wrote this in a story is that nobody expected him to be a star, but himself. Right. And in, in hindsight, you look back on what he went through at Michigan um, and the way he persevered and the way he believed in himself um, and fought for his job. And you saw the raw material of what he became. And certainly I didn't see it at that time, what he would become, but in hindsight, now I see some of the foundation for it. Um, you know, I've been lucky to be around a lot of great athletes, like call of famers. Um, and you go and, and you, you kind of see some of the traits that, that all that these guys have, and they're all different people and different. Um, that's the other thing you learn is they're all different people motivated by different things with different psychological profiles and what works for one won't necessarily work for the other, but um, it's a lot of fun to kind of dig into those stories. And have you found any, and it's interesting with Tom Brady, right? For the, who was the quarterback that was there at the same time as Tom Brady? Wasn't it? Um, it was oh, Drew Gotcha. So Drew, so, Drew, yeah. Yeah. Drew can you remind the, the audience what, that, what happened with that? So number one, he was from the state of Michigan. He was from Brighton. Uh, he was a hot shot recruit. He was a baseball and football player. Um, and so everybody wanted Drew Henson to be the quarterback. Brady was this unknown kid from San Mateo, California, who'd been buried on the depth chart and Michigan doesn't give much access. So nobody really knew much about it. Um, and so they go in to compete for the job and, you know, it's well known now how, how all that worked out, but, you know, Drew Henson was the quarterback everybody wanted and Henson was talented. I mean, look, you can say what you want, but the guy played uh, not only for Michigan, but he, he started a game for the Dallas Cowboys and he got a hit for the New York Yankees. There's not many people who can say that they did that. So, you know, pretty talented athlete. And I believe that had he focused on one sport and not two, he might've had a very successful career. I think it was just difficult for him trying to balance both. Um, but, you know, Brady had to fight for his job. 
And then, you know, obviously he, he's what a sixth round pick and, you know, was behind Drew Bledsoe. And next thing you know, I'm covering him in the Super Bowl. And uh, that was, that was insane. Right. So um, he's, he's one of the greatest sports stories ever. Um, but you look at, at that and you look at his, uh, just his determination to be great and, and not settling for what other people thought he would be. When you covered the Super Bowl with him, did you get a chance to circle back and talk to him? I got a chance to ask him some questions, but the Super Bowl is so like, there's so much media. And when you're the quarterback, it's um, like everybody wants to talk to you. Right. Yeah. So I did ask him some questions in a press conference. Um, But, you know, as a, as a writer and as a reporter, again, in a situation like that, okay. Everybody wants to talk to Tom Brady. He's only available in press conference settings. Like you're going to get some general sort of quotes from him. The story is found by calling his roommate, by talking to some of his old friends, by talking to teammates, some other people who have different perspectives on him. Um, and that's where you can, you can find a story that nobody else has that tells you something you don't know, right? So there's a lot of that um, that happens. And, you know, the other thing that Super Bowls is, you know, like I said, first best different, right? So you go there and there's a lot of the same questions and, and same kind of cliche stuff. So you got to find a way to be different. So I'll never forget, uh, it was a Super Bowl with the Patriots and Bill Belichick is the coach. And I read the book about his dad, um, you know, and I'm a Detroit writer at that time writing for the Detroit Free Press. So he spent a couple of years with the Detroit Lions early in his career. So I'm reading the book and I want a Detroit angle. So I asked Belichick in this press conference about his time with the Lions and how that um, set up his career. And he lit up at that question because it was just different than the game and everything else that you've been getting. And I got great answers from him. Right. So sometimes just a different sort of angle can, uh, can pay off. Yeah, no. And is he, and so I, Oh, a lot of good questions here. Um, let's, let's circle back to Brady for a sec. Cause I'm sure that's like what most people find interesting or, or the other, like, or like Belichick or these other really, you know, strong performers in game. Did you find any like common trait or have you found any common trait? Between, like, are there common traits between like the highest performers in the NHL and like a Tom Brady in the NFL or, or coaches like Belichick that you found over the years? And, and if so, what might those like, you know, two or three traits be? Well, there, there's lots of crossover, like Bill Belichick, like I covered Scotty Bowman uh, with mm-hmm. the Detroit Red Wings, greatest NHL coach of all time. And I saw some of Bowman and Belichick, right. And, and that is just simply being, you know, obviously being smart and always finding an edge and being adaptable. Like I think Bowman, you know, adapted, you know, decade to decade, Belichick obviously is adapted and he's ahead of the curve in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, there's a lot of crossover in different sports, but you know, a lot of it is, you got to bring something to the table, whether it's talent, work ethic that nobody else brings, right? Like you have to be, you have to be obviously better than other people or do something other people can't or won't do. Um, You know, those are paths to success in, in anything, right? So again, something people either can't or won't do that you can do, Um, you know, and coaches, like there's lots of different types of coaches. And, you know, one thing that I found is there's no one formula. 
Um, you know, there's no one way to win. There's no one way to motivate. There's no one way to teach. Um, so there are different styles, but you have to find what works for you. You have to find what works for your players. Um, you know, and some coaches are more rigid and, and find the personnel to fit their system. And other coaches are able to fit their system to their personnel. Uh, mm -hmm. But you kind of got to pick one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. you have to have an identity. You have to know who you are as a coach um, and what you're trying to accomplish. In, in either you're going to find the personnel to your tailor to your system or tailor your system to your personnel. So sure. um, it's a long rambling answer. But um, no, those are the best. I, I appreciate those answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, players like, look, talent is is lots of people have talent right so what do you do with it right and you know some if you're really talented maybe you can work less hard or have less desire and if you're not you have to have more desire and more work ethic but a lot of the players that that i found that have had success like don't just love to be a player like all the trappings of being a player like wearing the uniform running out of the tunnel skating out of the ice like they love the craft right like I love watching Sidney Crosby practice because he doesn't go through the motions at practice. Like he works on specific skills for specific situations, right? Um, like if you go out and watch him practice work individually before or after, like he's shooting, you know, pucks in a certain way from a certain spot on the ice because he sees a weakness in an upcoming opponent. And that's what he's going to work on. He's going to work on, you know, skating full speed and somebody throw the puck up the boards in his feet so he can kick it to his stick in full stride, right? He's going to work on that certain wraparound. And then you'll see it, like, you'll see it in a game and you'll know where that skill came from, um, you know, doing it at high speed, right? It came from all those reps. Like if you, I've watched lots of NFL practices. They are incredibly boring. Like it's, it's so boring, right? But if you watch, and you watch the, the little skills that people work on and you watch the reps and then you see it in a game, then you really start to understand how they do it, right? And the players who love to practice and love their craft and love the details, um, I find like do well, right? Like it's not just a, enough to love to play. You have to love to practice and work at it and right. uh, you know, love the burn. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I guess when, when you watch, um, it's like when you, when you're watching like Crosby or those guys, it's almost like you're, you're watching an artist or um, you just kind of know that they're like, you know, they're so intrinsically motivated to do this thing. Yeah. Like they have like the trappings of the fame and the attention and paychecks or whatever. Um, but there's almost a sense that like they would, they would do, they would find a way to be on the ice even without all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, certain guys, right. And like, it's not everybody, like there's certainly players in the NHL who don't like to practice and kind of loaf through and even some great players. Right. But like, you know, the guys that like, that are like Crosby, um, that's what sets him apart. Like Sidney Crosby, obviously he's a great athlete. But he's not like dominant in any particular way, but he he works so hard to be an all-around player and whatever his weaknesses, like early in his career it was face-offs. He was a bad face-off guy. So he just worked his butt off 
to become better at face-offs. Um, there was one year he didn't score a lot. So he worked on his shot and focused on scoring goals, right? He constantly worked on his weaknesses. Um, but when I get to watch him in particular practice, you see what makes him great, right? Is he loves to practice. He has a plan when he practices, he works on specific skills for specific situations. Um, and those guys, you, you see it show up in the game, right? And you watch yeah. an NFL practice, how structured it is, um, how specific it is. Like football is the sport I've found that people think they know the most about and know the least about in reality. <laughs> like they really do. Like, yeah. again, I'm rambling here. But so there was a press conference where the, the coach of the Lions, and this was the bad line. Okay, the O and 16 Lions. And he's explaining, he's like, we're we're close, like we're close. It's just an inch here, an inch there. And I'm sitting there in the press conference going, like, you gotta be kidding me. This is a bunch of BS. Like, you're close, you're getting blown out. Like, what do you mean you're close? So I actually asked the I got I was able to get to the coach and I said, Look, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean you're close? And he goes, Like, you you don't understand. I go, You're right, I don't understand. So show me on film. He goes, all right, meet me here at 5 a.m. and I'll show you on film. And I'm like, all right. So I showed up at 5 a.m. and 4.45 uh, because if you're, you know, if you're on time, you're late in the NFL. <laughs> so I showed up 4.45. We went in his office. He showed me on film. He showed me sort of the keys, um, you know, that, you know, the defensive linemen were looking at, right? And it was a level of detail and how quick it was. Like if a guy's hip is this way or his, his shoulder is turned that way, like th that means that th that's how you know which gap, you know, to go into. It was stuff that like blew my mind, right? Like I had no idea. Um, and you started to understand that I, what you don't know. I don't know what I don't know, right? And how fast the game is and what they're really taught to do. Um, right. You know, and that's a humbling experience, right? And this, again, a little little tangent, but when I say people don't know the NFL or football, there was a game where the Lions left tackle got beat by Jared Allen, uh, looked really bad. Um, I think it was Stafford at the time. Quarterback got sacked, um, and the left tackle is just getting roasted uh, on talk radio, and something didn't smell right to me. And I'm looking at the replay, and I can't figure out why he got beat so bad. So I went up to – um, one of the other offensive linemen, I said, what happened on that play? He goes, go ask Felton. I'm like, Felton? He's, yeah, go ask Felton. I'm like, okay, well, the fullback's name was Jerome Felton. So I went up to Jerome and I said, what happened on that play? He goes, oh man, I went the wrong way. So he was supposed to go left and the left tackle was chipping Jared Allen, expecting the fullback to be there to block Jared Allen. Well, the fullback went right. So on the replays, he's not even in the picture, Right. <laughs> And so, but you don't know what the players are being told to do on any given play. So you sure. got to be really careful about how you place blame or who did what or, or what you just, you don't know. Right. So right. Uh, that was a learning experience for me. Yeah. And there, there's so much dissonance between like, you know, watch thinking, you know, what's going on on TV versus like when you actually you know, have a chance to talk to some of these guys and, you know, even some of the, like the, the snappers or the kickers or the punters that I've got a chance to talk to in the NFL. I mean, you know, those guys sit in meetings all day and they're, and they're the specialists. I mean, not, not to say that their position is any easier or harder than anybody else's, but you know, if, if those guys are in meetings all day, 
and they only have one out of the four downs. Imagine what the other guys are doing for downs one, two, and three. Um, and, and so let's, I was kind of curious, and this kind of will be our last kind of big question here. You, you've sports are kind of like, you know, one of the last few things we can at least somewhat get on the same page with as Americans. Um, it, it's almost like, you know, like democracy relies requires some type of like common shared life where you're going to rub shoulders with people you don't look like or worship like or live like or you know have the same profession as or from the same areas and with when COVID hit you know we all had to shut down and whatnot but you know we, we still got sports at least a little bit um I'm curious from your perspective of being in the sports world for you know x amount of years for a couple decades what is it that Americans find irresistible about sports? Like why, why are we, it's almost like a secular religion um, in, in some respects. Um, what's your take on that? Boy, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> There's no right or wrong answer. Well, the answer may be in your question, you know, like I think we all have sports because we're fortunate as a society that we have um you know, we have the ability to, to just love entertainment, right? Like there's nothing like sports in that, A, it's great entertainment. Why is it great entertainment? Because you can't script it. Um, you know, we, we talked earlier about the media um, and how it's a crazy media landscape. Well, what's the most valuable property in media now? It's sports because sports is unscripted. And so um, people are drawn to it. Um, it's the ultimate reality show, right? And so now it's the one thing people will still watch live um, and they can sell ads against that because people want to, they're not going to record a great football game because like you want to be there. If a guy, you know, hits a game winning, you know, field goal at the end, like you want to see that live. You don't want to see it recorded, right? So I think that's your first key is it's it's unscripted drama, right? And it's great entertainment, but also, and what really hurts from a COVID perspective is, you know, it's, it is something that brings us together. It's, it's belonging. It's being part of something. Like we all love to be associated with a winner, right? Um, and even if your team doesn't win, like there's a togetherness in that too. Like, you know, the Cubs or the Red <laughs> like Sox for so being long. Being a Lions or a Lions you fan. Or a like... Lions fan, right? Like <laughs> Lions fans are passionate, right? And it's, it's like this shared misery that they have won one playoff game since 1957. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it is, it's a shared thing. Like I went to Michigan. Um, there's a pride in that there's, it's been a hundred plus thousand people for every game uh, until COVID since the 1970s, right? Like people go there to go, right? <laughs> Not just to watch the football game. They go there to go be a part of it, right? It's, it's a way to be a part of something. Um, so, you know, sports are a very powerful thing. And, you know, I've gotten to see some things overseas too. Um, but, you know, it's a uniquely, I think, American, you know, sports are international. People love them all over the world. But it's a uniquely American and Canadian thing when it comes to hockey, just how big it is and how big a part of life it is here, um, you know, and how important it is, right? And then you get to kids. And you know, the other thing that COVID has really brought out too in my family with, with my kids is just how important it is because they love to do it. They love to play. They love to be part of a team. 
um, you know, you love to play your sport, but you also love to be with your friends and have that social outlet. Right. And it's great from, for their physical and mental health. And when it's disrupted or taken away, you can see the effect on other parts of their life. Right. So, you know, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves and we all, you know, want to, you know, when we can't do that and it hurts. So I think that's another long rambling answer, but uh, you know, maybe there's kernels <laughs> of truth in there somewhere. Yeah, no, I, the, the rambling are the best kind. Um, where, and so two more questions, we'll, we'll speed it up because it is, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, to use a hockey analogy, are, wh- where's, where's kind of the puck going in whether it's the NHL or pro sports in general over the next 10 to 15 years? I mean, what, what are maybe like one or two major trends that you see that might have an impact on the sports world in the next like in, uh, it, 10 in media years. or in the game? Oh, good question. Um, one media and one in the game. Well, media wise, I think it's, it's the ways and people are, are consuming the sport. And I think it's true in hockey and I think it's true in all sports. Like our latest media deal incorporates a lot of streaming, right? People now, mm-hmm don't just watch a game in the arena or on their TV. They watch it on their phone. They watch highlights on Twitter. Um, You know, they stream games on whatever device. Um, You know, they consume the sport much differently uh, than, than they used to. And sports gambling also is a big, um, you know, part of it too. And a growing part of it Uh, now that it's being legalized in different States, people are betting on sports and that creates a whole nother layer. You know, then you add, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of things as I go here, then, you know, data, um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, money ball and analytics in all sports, football, NBA, NHL, um, the way the games are, you know, analyzed by the teams themselves and by fans um, is changing rapidly. Um, you know, the NHL is, is trying to introduce a puck and player tracking system to give even more data. Um, and what's interesting about that is it, it's such a new and evolving sort of, you know, science or art that it's difficult to figure out what's just data and, and what do you draw from it? Like what, what's the context, right? Um, right. So that's kind if you, of- a, If you measure everything, you measure nothing. Yeah, so like what wisdom can you draw from this data, right? And it's interesting to watch the teams sort of in that race. Um, and you see also like you're looking through for threads in different sports. Like there are people working in hockey who came from the NFL or the NBA because data analysis, um, you know, it transcends the, the individual sports, right? So that's an interesting trend. Um, you know, then there's player safety too. I think, you know, head trauma is, an, you know, subject in the NHL just as it is in the NFL. The rules have been changed. Um, in pretty dramatic ways in the National Hockey League to reduce head trauma, though not to the extent that some people want it. Um, so that's something also that's changed in the game. It's, it's a faster game than it's ever been um, because of the rules and because of the athletes. But the problem with that has been that's led, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile that with concussions and head trauma? So they've had to make other adjustments. So the, the game has changed. Uh, and for the better, I think. So, um, you know, those are some big trends that I see. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it's uh, it, well, at least the NHL has kind of managed to turn up the speed dial a little bit on the game, whereas baseball <laughs> seems to continually shoot itself in the foot. Um, but that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Um, what what would be um, maybe two or three pieces of advice you would have for a young person looking to start a career in sports entertainment in 2021? Well, if you're looking to get into media, um, my advice is to start by consuming as much of it as you can. Like if you want to be a writer, read. If you want to work on TV, watch. Um, And don't just do it mindlessly. Like if you're reading your favorite writer, try to ask yourself, well, how did they write this? How did they get this information? How did they structure it? Right? Um, If you're watching a television personality, well, like try to figure out how they do what they do. Right? How how do they ask their questions? How do they frame their arguments? Um, And really kind of study it from that standpoint. And then, you know, the next step is to do like do as much as you can, like, you know, to go back to the start of our conversation. I mean, I wrote for my high school or I did write for my high school paper, but I wrote for my college newspaper. Uh, I worked countless hours there. I edited there. Um, I did the two glamorous internships that I told you, but I also freelanced like crazy, Um, you know, and I loved it and I learned a lot, right? Like, and you, you can't be above working for little pay if you can afford it um, and paying your dues. Like I remember um, my senior year, like there was a Saturday I covered a major college football game, I think at Penn State. Then on Sunday, I covered Tampa Bay at Green Bay in the NFL. And my head is, you know, expanding, you know, greatly because I'm like, wow, I just covered you know, Penn State and, and Green Bay and like I'm 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 big time. And then Tuesday night I was covering a, a girls basketball game, class D on the east side of Detroit, writing on the floor with my back against the locker and filing at a gas station because that's what you had to do, right? And then I would take phone calls with scores in the office, you know, for for prep football games. Like do, right? Like more reps, more practice. Um and that's how you're going to learn. Um, you know, if you want to get into, you know, working for a team, it's very competitive. Um, team or a league, I guess. It's very competitive. So you, you just have to get experience wherever you can. Um, you know, lower levels. Like, you know, again, I'm jumping around. But like, and I didn't do this because I wanted a career in the media. But, you know, I played hockey um, in high school, but we didn't have a high school team. Uh, I played freshman basketball, but A, I was terrible, and B, I wanted to play hockey, and I couldn't do both. But my buddies were on the basketball team. So to be a part of it, um, I conned my way into being the PA announcer for the varsity basketball team and the music guy. And then that also turned into doing like cable access announcing. And I did it for fun. Like, um, you know, and all that stuff, you got to do it because it's fun and you love it. you know, and if you do that and you get lots of experience, then you put yourself in position to be lucky. Right. Yeah. It's almost, you can't uh, control luck, but you can do things that attract it. Um, And I think, yeah. To use a hockey analogy. Okay. Like in hockey, you go to the net. If you go to the front of the net, 
um, that's where a puck's going to go in off your shin pad, right? Like people say, oh, that's a lucky goal. And it is, right? Like you stood in front of the net and a puck hit you and went in. But the reason you, you got a lucky goal is you fought your way to the front of the net and you took a stick in the back um, and a slash on the ankle to put yourself in position to, to get that lucky goal. And that's what you have to do in life. Like you have to work and you have to love your work and you have to put yourself in position so that puck can hit you and go in. 